0: Morning church. The Bible reading today is taken from um, two books: so Romans chapter one, one to four, and Colossians three, to four. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, regarding his Son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And Colossians 3, 1-4 Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, it's great to be uh, here with you guys again. Um, and yes, we're, this is the <laughs> second talk in a mini-series on the resurrection. So last week was, um, What Hope is the Resurrection? This week is, um, What Did the Resurrection Do? So what did the resurrection do? What does the resurrection accomplish? Um, when I uh, was, uh, well, I, I don't have an office home anymore, but I had an office at one point in, in, in my house. And I think a year or so ago, um, our youngest child, um, our son Barnaby came into the office and he wanted to go to the, uh, the ice cream store it's a few minutes walk away, and they often go there by themselves and buy ice cream, but I didn't have any money. And so I said, just take this this card. And I had like a little uh, card, bank card that he could tap to buy his ice cream with. And I hadn't realised this, but Barnaby, our son, had never seen us use this card. Um, he'd seen us use the phone. Um, he'd seen us use cash, but he'd never seen us use this card. Um, and he, he said, uh, what do I do with this card? And I said, Well, you just take that card to the ice cream shop. You um, you ask for your order, and then you tap that card where they tell you to tap it, and uh, it pays for your ice cream. And I could see his little eyes light up like <laughs> this little bit of plastic. Which looks it's an orange ING card. That's who we're with. Um, and uh, you know, it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty little piece of plastic. But you could just see his eyes going, Wow! Like. And his his brain exploding this little bit of plastic. He can just buy whatever I want in any store. This is amazing. And I could see the gears grinding, like looking around, what other bits of plastic had this magical power? Um, and just that explanation completely transformed his understanding of what that card could do and how important or powerful it was. And I think with the, the resurrection, there's a superficial way of understanding the resurrection. Uh, which is important and spectacular, um, but is nonetheless simply superficial. So, for instance, for, I think, uh, a long time, I am pretty much sure the resurrection of Jesus all about proving that the cross works. That's pretty much it. Um, so when Jesus rose from the dead, we know, right, that what he did on the cross worked. If on the cross he died for our sins, his resurrection demonstrates that indeed that has happened, that our sins have been dealt with. That's why we can come back and be at the right hand of the Father. And it proves historically in time and space that God has accomplished this saving work. And that's really for me as far as it went. And that's all, that is huge, that is significant, but I want to say there's more. There's much, much more to the resurrection And today I just want to pick up on two things when we are considering what does the resurrection do or what did it do. Two things I want to talk about today. It accomplished uh, Christ's coronation. It was Christ's coronation and it's our sanctification. It accomplished those two things, Christ's coronation and it accomplished our sanctification. So first of all, Christ's, coronation. That's what it's talking about here in Romans chapter 1. uh, When it talks about the good news there, it's talking all about Jesus becoming king. Look at what it says, listen to what it says, Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel, the good news he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son. So what is this good news? He goes on to say, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So how does Paul there describe and summarise the good news from God that we have in Jesus? Well, he describes it as being, through the power of the resurrection, Jesus uh, being appointed or declared the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now to really understand this, um, it's helpful to think about the good news according to the Old Testament. If you were to ask a Jewish person, you know, what, what is your summary of the good news, um, I'm not sure what that'd say, but I would take you to Isaiah chapter 2. In there I think that's like a John 3.16 verse of the Old Testament. And this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. This is what Isaiah son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. There is a crisp clear vision of the people of God's hope in the Old Testament. And what's this vision? This vision is that the Lord's temple, that is, God dwelling with his people, will be established as the highest of the mountains, that is, above all other mountains of the world, and it will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. So here is their hope, here is their vision, here is the good news that they believe God is promising them as God's people, I will one day come and dwell with you myself in my temple. It will be elevated, and all the nations will stream in to live under the blessing of God's rule. Now what's a, what's of course uh, what of course is important in the Old Testament is to understand the link between that and the Messiah, right? So as you know, this hope is developed through the Old Testament, um, it's, it rests upon the Messiah coming, the great king that God will appoint to accomplish this vision here in Isaiah 2.2. So these two things are there together, tightly held together in the Old Testament. When God's king comes, he will establish God's temple and all the nations will stream in. And here in uh, Romans, uh, that is what it's saying. It's saying that through the resurrection, Jesus is that Messiah who makes Isaiah 2.2 come true. But uh, an astute listener might say, but hang on, Stuart, it doesn't talk there about the Messiah. It says, appointed the Son of God in power through his resurrection. Uh, But of course, that was a title used of the king, right, in the Old Testament. Uh, The go-to passage for that is Psalm chapter 2, which is a coronation psalm, a song they would sing when a new king was installed in Jerusalem. They would sing Psalm 2. And in that psalm, it describes God's king as being God's son, because he represents God. Uh, and God's rule among his people. So here it's saying that through the resurrection, what does the resurrection do? What does it accomplish? Well, when Jesus is raised from the dead, it makes it clear that he is the forever king who will bring in the blessing of God's rule as pictured in Isaiah 2.2. That's what it accomplishes. And it's even bigger than Jesus simply being appointed as the forever Messiah. You see, in the Old Testament, you know, the end hope, this end vision of the blessing of God's rule, was in conjunction with a whole lot of other end stuff, right? That all had to fall in place for the full blessing of God's rule to come true. In the Old Testament, it looks forward, right, to a suffering servant. It looks forward to a Son of Man. It looks forward to a renewed temple. Um, it looks forward to a priest in the order of Melchizedek. It looks forward to this great end, decisive judgment where all evil will be dealt with. There are threads and threads of things, right, that all fall in place um, and come together when the blessing of God's rule is established. And so when Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 1, this is the good news. Jesus has been declared, he's been appointed as the forever Messiah through his resurrection. He's saying that somehow all of that stuff has come together in Jesus. He is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the great, final and awesome day of judgment. He is the Son of Man. He is the suffering servant. He is the second prophet like Moses who was promised. He's all of these things. And so this is a kind of a, <laughs> I might put it sort of in a uni context, this is Jesus' hold my beer moment. It's sort of a bit of a meme, hold my beer, like, you know, I'm going to do this, we'll hold my beer, I'll do it even better. You've got all these people, right, who would like to think of themselves as one of the great world powers in the world, right? You've got Putin, you've got Xi Jinping, you've got, you know, Biden, all these people who we look up to as world leaders and they all pale compared to Jesus. What it's describing here in Romans chapter 1 is a comprehensive rule over everything, everyone, every atom, every molecule for eternity. So what does the resurrection do? Well, there are many implications for us, but one actually really big but sort of small application is that Jesus has got you. Jesus has got you. There are many things, right, that we worry about in life. Jesus has got it. Jesus is in control. Uh, he's demonstrated that his you know that his rule is one of love. What is his crown? It's a crown of thorns. What are his military honours? It's the it's the wounds in his side, right? These marks of a loving king who laid down his life for you. He's pictured in Revelation as the slain lamb. A humble, meek sacrifice in love offered for us. You know, giving up his power, as God says in Philippians 2, in order to save us, and yet he is the forever comprehensive ruler, you can trust him. He's demonstrated that he loves you, that he's in control. He's got this. A few years ago, there was an, a documentary on ABC called Next Step Hollywood, and I think it was a great documentary series that they produced, and it was about a bunch of Aussies who went over to Hollywood to try and make it, to become a star. And I remember the story of one lady in particular who had spent something like seven years um, in Hollywood uh, trying to get a gig, trying to get a role, and um, she never quite made it. And so she was doing all these menial tasks just to get by, just to make a living. And they've got this uh, scene towards the end of the series where she's sitting on a bench seat under the Hollywood sign, thoroughly dejected. And she's saying to the camera, with sort of tears welling up in her eyes, my heart told me to come to Hollywood. She's from Victoria. She's from regional Victoria. She was a religious person. She left her religion. She left her boyfriend. She left her family. She left her country to go to Hollywood. Seven years. Didn't work out. She said, my heart told me to come to Hollywood and now I'm asking my heart, what do I do now? I've followed my passion, I've followed my dream. It's not working out, what do I do now? And she says, and my heart is silent. My heart is silent. It's not telling me anything. And There's a lot of pressure on us, isn't there, in our lives to live our best lives now, to live live the life that will be most fulfilling. And it can be sort of liberating to know that we have a lot of power to do lots of things and to choose kind of what we want in life. We're not just driven by duty. There's also a lot of pressure, isn't there? How can I make myself happy? And I want to say to you, Jesus says, come follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He is the comprehensive ruler over everything forever, including you and your life. He loves you. Trust him. He knows who you are. He knows what is best for your life. Follow him. So what does the resurrection do? It accomplishes Christ's coronation. And secondly, it accomplishes what it does is it accomplishes our sanctification. That is the process by which we are made holy. Christ's resurrection makes us holy. Uh, Listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Since then, you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a spectacular Couple of verses. Why should I set my thing? Why should I set my mind on things above? Because I can trust Jesus. Because he's a great inspiration. Because he shows me the end point that I want to get to. Because he's my model. I guess yes to all those things, but that's not what it's saying here, is it? It's not saying that here. It's saying, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ too is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What does the resurrection achieve? Well, it's changed your status. Uh, There's a thing called positional sanctification. That is, it's changed your position before God. You are no longer standing before God by yourself. No. You and I stand before God in Jesus Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done, that is who we now are. That's, uh, that's who I am, that's who you are. We've been made holy in him because of his resurrection. As he is holy, we are holy. It's a little bit like um, travelling on a plane. I think the language we use when we travel on a plane is really interesting so if we go to on a plane to, say, Sydney or to Perth, you might say, you know, I fly to Sydney or I fly to Perth or I fly to New Zealand. Um, I mean, no one fly to New Zealand, so I don't fly to uh, uh, Canberra or Northern Territory. I fly to these places. But how much flying do you and I do when we get on that plane? It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? I fly to Sydney. Well, what do you do? Do you flap? Your wings? Do you sort of make engine noises? Do you somehow contribute to the plane getting off the ground? No. All we do is step on the plane. The plane does all the flying, right? I guess a more precise way of saying it was, um, you know, I I was I I was flown to Sydney, or I was flown to Perth, or we carried along by the plane. And in a similar way. The Bible says that's how it works before God in Jesus. We step into Jesus when we put our faith in him. It talks about being in him. When Jesus died 2,000 years ago, he didn't just die for me, he died as me. When Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, He didn't just rise for me, he rose as me. He took my sin on himself so that now it's right to say my life is hidden in Jesus. Who I really am destined to be is locked up in who Jesus is and what he has done. So what does the resurrection do? It makes us holy. Holy. As Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in perfect harmony in the most holy place without any fear of death or judgment, so are we. And Christ's resurrection makes us holy because positional sanctification, who we declare to be in Jesus, flows on to progressive sanctification. Us, here and now, in our flesh, working to be the holiness that we have in Jesus. Look at what it says, or listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. So I'll start with um, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, last evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because our life is hidden in Christ, put to death all of that stuff that belongs to the earthly nature, that leads you to the grave. And positional sanctification empowers progressive sanctification. Just imagine, if you will, um, someone who... Or just imagine, if you will, if you were wanting to learn to swim and you'd never been in a pool... You barely even touch the water. You're afraid of the beach. It terrifies you, the thought of learning to swim, but you know you need to. I suppose there are two approaches, right? Sometimes you hear parents talking about different ways of teaching their kids to swim. One approach is throw them in the deep end. (laughs) They'll soon learn to swim. Throw them in the deep end and they'll work out that they can float. They'll work out how to get there. They might you know, sort of struggle a bit but it'll teach them not to be afraid of it. What I want to suggest, though, is if you really don't know how to swim, if you've never really even had that experience of floating, if you panic when you hit the water, wouldn't it be a disaster to throw you in the deep end? If you're thrown in the deep end as someone who really doesn't know anything about swimming, you almost certainly will drown. You'll panic and you'll sink like a rock to the bottom. You'll be filled with water taking in water as you gasp for air. But consider if you're then thrown in, by contrast, the shallow end. You don't how to swim, but someone throws you into the shallow end and immediately your feet feel the safety of the bottom of the pool. And you know it's fine, you're in control at any moment. You can just stand up on your feet and breathe as if you weren't even in the water. It's a completely different prospect, isn't it? If it's not a matter of life or death, learning to swim can even be a fun thing. If learning to swim is a matter of life and death, it is extremely dangerous and threatening, right? And my friends, that's what it's like as Christians, as sinners, living under law. Under law, we're thrown in the deep end. The law is all about sink or swim. You are either completely righteous or you're rightly judged eternally by God. But it says here in the New Testament that we do not live under law, rather, our life is hidden in Christ. We live by the Spirit. That's what that means. We live by the Spirit. That is, by the power of the Spirit, we've entrusted ourselves to Jesus and now we live in grace. We still pursue the same righteousness that was contained in the law, but it's a completely different context. It's not life or death. Our our feet can touch the bottom at any moment. Positional sanctification empowers progressive sanctification. What does the resurrection achieve? Christ's coronation. He's got this and achieves our sanctification. We have been made holy and we have the power ourselves to pursue holiness. Let me end with this. There's a great quote from a book by a guy called Rory Shiner about the resurrection. I highly recommend the book, Rory Shiner. I don't know what the title of the book is, but it's about resurrection. And here's what he says. This hope, this resurrection hope that we have, this hope is something you can take with you into the trenches of daily life. In any given week, at home, at the office, on the construction site, in the classroom, you will see signs of the old regime, sin and death and Satan, doing their work as if they are still welcome. But they're not. How different to be able to look at sin in all its ugliness and be able to roll your eyes at it like your dad has just shown up in his 1978 disco suit. Sin is real and it's horrible. But it's also tedious and boring and it has officially been put on notice Jesus has risen. Sin and death are the losers. The gains up. Amen. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you, God, that in the resurrection we can see that Jesus is this comprehensive forever ruler. And we thank you, God, that because of Christ's resurrection we have been made holy and we are being made holy. Thank you for this joy and this glory that we get to participate in. In your son's name. Amen.